أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين The prophethood of the Holy Prophet went through a number of stages. The first stage, as we examined before, was a semi-private stage in which it was not yet an open public invitation. It was not yet even a public obligation yet to join the religion of Islam. The Prophet wanted to give people time to digest those teachings, to reflect, to prepare the believers for the upcoming challenges. So the first stage was a semi-private stage. The Prophet would receive revelation, he would read verses, but usually he would read them to the believers only. He would not go publicly, stand before Quraysh, invite them to the religion of Islam, command them to join him and read verses. So the first three years or so, we can say that it was of this stage, a semi-private stage. The second stage of the Prophet's prophethood came when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructed him to invite his relatives, his kinship, specifically to come and join the religion of Islam. Then, السلام, the third stage was the public stage in which Allah commands the Prophet to go fully public with his mission and invite everyone. And it was in this third stage that you really had the clashes between the pagans and between those early Muslims. In the first two stages, there weren't many clashes because it was pretty much semi-private. It was low profile. Let's examine now the second stage of the Prophet's prophethood. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in the Holy Quran in Surah Ash-Shu'ara, verse 214. God commands the Prophet to invite his relatives to become Muslim. Now, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala command the Prophet to start with his relatives first in the second stage? For a number of reasons. First of all, it's to show that he's genuine, he's honest, he's, he's sincere, and so you would naturally start with your relatives because you care about your relatives. If you're not, you know, someone who's fraudulent, who's deceptive, then you'll start with those whom you love, those who are close to you. That actually shows you're genuine. Number two, the Prophet really wanted them to have the honor of supporting him. You want your family to support you, so God blesses them with such an honor. That's the second reason. The third reason, it shows that the Prophet did not really, you know, have double standards. He started with his family and when his family, his own relatives rejected him, the Prophet condemned them and he took a firm stance towards them. That shows that the Prophet didn't have double standards. Most people have double standards. If it's your family, you'll make exceptions for them, fine. 
you'll be, you know, gentle with them. But when it comes to other people, you're very tough on them. The Prophet showed that I started with my family, my own family. When they rejected, I took a different stance towards them. The Prophet was demonstrating to his society that he's working for God. He's not operating based on a tribal mentality that my relatives have a special status. No, even if my own uncle stands in the way of truth, defies God, I'll condemn him like Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab is the very uncle of the Prophet. God reveals a verse in the Holy Quran condemning him. Why does God do that? Well, there were many people who fought the Prophet. God didn't even mention their names. Why did God mention Abu Lahab specifically? To demonstrate to that society that the Prophet is objective, he's not biased, he does not have double standards. Even if it's his own uncle who's going to defy God, he'll condemn him. So it's not like the Prophet made us, you know, this exception for his family. It's okay, you can still not believe in God, you can still fight God, but I'll still be good with you. No, that doesn't work that way. So this was another reason why God commanded the Prophet to start with his own relatives. Now how did that happen? How did the Prophet invite his relatives? Tabari, a Sunni scholar, in his historical book, in his tarikh, narrates an interesting hadith. And we have also narrated this hadith. When this verse was revealed, the Prophet called on Imam Ali, who was young at the time, you know, he was 14, maybe 15, 13. He called on him and he told him to prepare a meal tomorrow. I want you tomorrow to prepare dinner. Then invite all the progeny of Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet's grandfather. So go to my uncles, our uncles, the cousins, right? All of them, invite them for a dinner. We want to see them and have a gathering. So the Imam السلام, prepares the food. He invites about 40 of them from the progeny of Abdul Muttalib. So the uncles and the cousins, around 40 of them. Abu Lahab was invited, Abbas was invited, Abu, Tal Abu Talib was invited, all of them were invited to this invitation. The Imam السلام, he prepares the food, he brings the food. Um, it was a part of the lamb, a slice of lamb meat that he offered it to them. And then once they had that lunch or dinner, the Prophet commanded him to bring the milk. So there was a container that had some milk in it. He came and he gave them that milk so they could all drink. Now when the Prophet wanted to talk, he was about to say something, his uncle Abu Lahab cut him off. Why? The hadith by Tabari states, there was a miracle that happened there. What was the miracle? You had 40 men. And remember, when you have 40 men, they're going to eat a lot of food. They're going to drink a lot of milk if everyone wants to drink to the point where they're full. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib says, the meat that I prepared, that lamb meat, was just a slice of, of, of lamb. You know, like one leg of a sheep. And he says, I swear by God, those 40 men ate from that lamb. Each of them ate to the point where they became full. The Imam says, according to Tabari, 
that in normal circumstances, if you give that meat to one of them, they could eat it by themselves. They could finish it by themselves. One man could eat that meat. Same with the milk. There was some milk in a container. The Imam says one of those men could drink all that milk. But 40 of them drank from that milk, yet it did not finish. It was a miracle that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala performed. So there was very little food, very little milk, but all of the 40 ate from that food, they drank from that milk, and it was sufficient, it was enough. So they saw the miracle, like what's going on, you know, what's this miracle? So when the Prophet wanted to talk and tell them why they put this invitation together, Abu Lahab cut him off. Abu Lahab, Abu Lahab, early on he was against the Prophet. What did Abu Lahab say? Abu Lahab said, look you Bani Hashim, the family of the Prophet, don't be fooled by this magician. He accused his own nephew, the Prophet, of being a sorcerer and a magician. Because they saw the miracle. They were going to tell him, Abu Lahab, you know, don't, didn't you see the miracle? This little food was enough for all of us. This little amount of milk was enough for all of us. So before anyone would say that, what did he say? He took the initiative and he said, don't be fooled by this magic. And look at the division that he's created in our society, you know, through by this religion. When he cut him off and he said that, the Prophet was very disturbed. He realized this is not the appropriate time to talk. So he did not say anything. They left. He told Imam Ali salam, invite them again. Have them come tomorrow and let's give them the same food and the same drink. So he extended to them another invitation. The same people who were present came. This time, as soon as they finished, the Prophet gave a speech. Tabari narrates that speech. What did he say? Ya Bani Abdul Muttalib. Oh, the sons of our grandfather Abdul Muttalib. I swear by God, no man in the history of your society has brought to you something that is better than what I have to offer to you, meaning the religion of Islam. So realize that this is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I am bringing to you, I'm delivering to you the best of both worlds. The best of dunya, this world, and the best of akhirah. This is a religion that will actually make your world better and your akhirah. And subhanAllah, the Prophet was truthful because these ignorant people, they didn't realize that if they support the Prophet, right, they'll get positions. Naturally, if you support the Prophet and God will give him victory, and they saw the miracle, so they knew that God will give him victory, they would have had a good standing in that society, but they blew it away. So he told them, I'm delivering to you the best of both worlds. Then he told them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded me to invite you and to put this gathering, to put this meal. In another hadith he says, just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought a heavenly meal to the companions of Prophet Isa salam, God has instructed me to give you this meal. Why? This is a sign indicating that I am truthful that this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now that you've seen the miracle and you've seen the sign, if you disbelieve, like Abu Lahab did, God will 
subject you to severe punishment and chastisement. So this was the introduction that the Prophet gave. Okay, what do you have to say? You're inviting them to the religion of Islam, but then what is he, what is he supposed to say? Then the Prophet said, I am inviting you to become Muslim and I am asking you, which one of you is willing to support me and in return he will be my brother, he will be my supporter and he will be my Khalifa, my heir, the one who will represent me after me. Is anyone willing or not? One hadith states, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, stood, when no one talked, everyone is looking at the Prophet, the Imam stood, the Prophet <coughs> signaled to him to sit down. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. So according to this hadith, the Imam السلام, stood up, to accept the call of the Prophet, the Prophet signaled to him, let's, let's give them a chance. Let's see if any of them want to come forward. So the Prophet said that a second time. Is anyone willing to support me? And if you do, in return, you will become my Khalifa. My brother, my supporter and my Khalifa. Second time, no one got up. No one was willing to show their support for the Prophet. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, stood up the second time, the Prophet signaled to him, sit, let's give them another chance. The Prophet did this three times, three times he's asking his own family, the closest people to him, support me and in return you'll get a position, I'll give you a good position, you will be my Khalifa, none of them accepted. So the third time Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, stood at that young age, a young man, a youthful face, he said, I, Ya Rasulullah, accept to be your Khalifa. When the Imam السلام, said that, what did he say? Tabari narrates this hadith, Sunni scholar. He says the, Imam, the Prophet put his hand on the neck of Imam Ali, you know like you put your hand on the shoulder, the, he put his hand on the neck of the Imam and he says, Inna hadha akhi. This is my brother. He is my wasi, my successor and my khalifa amongst you. So you have to obey him. Listen to him and obey him. What did they do according to Tabari's version? They started laughing, they mocked the Prophet and they looked at Abu Talib, the father of Imam Ali who was there, they told him, oh Abu Talib, you see what your nephew is saying now? From today you have to take orders from your son. And they started, you know, making a joke out of it. So Tabari narrates that this incident actually happened. Now we have from our sources the full text of the speech of what the Prophet said, it's a beautiful uh, speech. This hadith is called Hadith al-Dar, the hadith of the house. It's a very important hadith that demonstrates Imam Ali السلام, is the rightful Khalifa number one and number two it has challenged the Sunni schools of thought. When they come across this hadith they're challenged with it, they feel uneasy about it, they don't know what to make of it because it's a clear 
hadith that mentions the word Khalifa. See in Ghadir, the Prophet in the common version he says Wali, right? Which is also an indication of Khilafah. So their argument, well he didn't specifically say Khalifa and I want the word Khalifa only. Okay, in Hadith al-Dar you have the word Khalifa. So what do you say about that? So they've been challenged by this. By the way, Tabari himself, the Sunni scholar who mentions this, he has two books. He has the encyclopedia of his history book, Tariq al-Tabari. In Tariq al-Tabari he mentions this full hadith, quoting the Prophet saying that he is not only my brother and successor but also Khalifa. Tabari also has tafsir of the Quran, tafsir al-Tabari. In tafsir al-Tabari it appears that he realized this hadith is not good for him to mention, so he played with it a little bit. What did he do? When he quoted the Prophet holding Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib his neck and he said this is my brother, my supporter, my Khalifa, in his tafsir what does he say? This is my brother and so and so, kada wa kada. He deletes the words the Prophet uses. In which book? In his tafsir. Now in his tarikh he gave us the full text but subhanAllah you see in his tafsir he realized this is not a hadith that's compatible with their school of thought so he had to change some words and, we, and this is something that we find common in some of these sources. So, أَنْ يَكُونَ أَخِي وَكَذَا وَكَذَا Tabari? Well Tabari is highly respected. Now his book, because it's a history book, it's not a book of rulings, it's not as authentic as like Bukhari. Bukhari is very authentic to them, but it's a valid source, yes. So Tabari is a well-respected Sunni scholar. Most Sunnis would accept what's in Tabari. Which century was he in? Tabari, which century was he in? I don't remember now, let me double check that. Uh, yes, he came after Bukhari, yes, but he's well respected. Yeah, but they said this So they would still have to verify the chain obviously, it's not like Bukhari where it's a given that it's authentic to many Sunni schools of thought, but it's, it's a source, it's a valid source that you will find them coding. Now when it comes to the virtues of the Sahaba, you don't see them making this argument. Oh Tabari said this, it's a fact, mention it. When it comes to the virtues of Ahlul Bayt, oh you know, let, let's examine the chain and so on and so forth. By the way, we do have a valid chain for this. They pick and, pick and choose, yes. But we do have a valid chain for this book. What's that? I said they pick and choose out of every book though. Yes, even, even from Bukhari by the oh, way. Yeah, if anybody really had even like a little bit of intellect, if you read, and I'm not being insulting at all, but if you read through Bukhari, it's like from page to page even. It's like um, contradicting and, and that was one of the first books I actually read. And I just was like, okay, this is... So they are selective, even when it comes to Bukhari, these days you'll find them being selecting and picking and choosing. 
But we have many, many sources for hadith al-dar. It's not just, you know, a tabari. Yes. Um, uh, one of the wordings that uh, I heard in the, uh, in the hadith al-dar that uh, was just mentioned, um, that I think that current modern-day Sunnis uh, have updated their arguments that they could use. Fi ahli? Sorry? Fi ahli, is that the argument? Yeah, the, the argument is that even at Ghadir, he could have been making the uh, argument that is not for the Ummah, but just for within his family, within Bani Hashim. And maybe that's what he was mentioning over here in Hadith al because only they were invited to. And so he says um, uh, he, that he's the brother uh, and the Wasi, actually, and Khalifati Minkum. Yes, Fikum, yes, among you. Yeah. They have made that argument that the Prophet wasn't clearly appointing him as the Khalifa for everyone, for the Ummah, just for his family. Our scholars have responded to that. First of all, according to Islamic law, we don't have two types of Khalifas. You know, you're a Khalifa for a, a certain group. Um, we don't have that. And no Prophet of God had a type of Khalifa like that. We just have one Khalifa. Either you're Khalifa or you're not the Khalifa. So in Islamic law, we don't have such Khilafa. And number two, we have a number of different wordings that are actually more general. And number three, if the Prophet is starting with his own family, those who fought him, and he's declaring Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib as the Khalifa that even his father Abu Talib has to listen to, then obviously he expects the Muslim Ummah to follow Ali ibn Abi Talib. Because when your own uncles who are older than Imam Ali, you're making it mandatory for them to obey him, which is difficult, right? Because when you're dealing with family politics, the elders of a family, they don't want to follow someone younger, right? Yet, God made that an obligation. Then this tells us that the Ummah, it's a given that they had to follow Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib So scholars have made a number of arguments to uh, respond to that. But we do have a number of, uh, you know, terms. So we see that, you know, Tabari in one book he mentions it, in another book he decides to omit uh, some some crucial details. Ibn Taymiyyah, you know, as he always does, the, the extremist Sunni scholar, he rejects this hadith, this is fabricated, this is forged, even though we have tens of sources. So according to Sunni schools of thought, this is actually a hadith that's mutawatir. It's a successive, powerful hadith, but you know, they don't want to uh, give any, any virtue to Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib Yes, it's, if you want to search for it, it's Hadith al-Dar. Usually it's known as Hadith al-Dar. The, the Hadith of the house, meaning the gathering that happened in this house. Now two points about this Hadith. Some have posed this challenge to the Shia. They say, you Shia, you believe Abu Talib was faithful, right? Well, in Hadith al-Dar, he didn't support the Prophet. He kept quiet. He didn't stand and say, Ya Rasulullah, I'll support you. So that shows that he was just like these other uncles of the Prophet, he didn't believe. What's the answer to that? First of all, we have proofs that Abu Talib was faithful. We'll examine that later when we discuss Abu Talib's support for the Prophet Number two, Abu Talib at this time was old. He was in the later stages of his life. You know, he passed away about five, six, seven years after this incident. So Abu Talib had grown old and he knew that he would not be the successor to the Prophet and he would not live after the Prophet for him, 
you know, to come and accept such a commitment. He already knew that. That's one response. Number two, Abu Talib knew that the Prophet was not addressing him specifically. He believed in the Prophet, he supported the Prophet. Even without saying that, Abu Talib gave everything to the Prophet. We'll see how he supported the Prophet and no school of thought will dispute that. Yes, they'll accuse him of not being a Muslim. He was a pagan but he supported the Prophet. So he gave his utmost support to the Prophet but he knew that the Prophet did not expect him to be his Khalifa and it was not an obligation for him to be the Khalifa of the Prophet. So that's why he didn't say anything. Yes? Abbas, no. Abbas was actually much younger. Abbas was one of the younger uncles of the Prophet. So no, he was not old. Many other cousins that, that who were present there, they were not old. So Abu Talib was pretty old, but the others, they were younger than him. So these family members, uh, was Hamza included in this? Okay, as for Hamza, there is a discussion whether he was included in this or not. Hamza was young, he was, you know, a few years older than the Prophet It seems that he should, he should have been in this gathering because the hadith says he gathered all of the sons of uh, Abdul Muttalib who were alive. Initially, initially Hamza, he never fought the Prophet, he never took a stance against the Prophet, but it took him a while to join the Prophet. So it seems that in that period he was neutral, he was still hearing verses from the Quran, he had heard about the Prophet's message, he had not made a decision to join yet. He didn't fight him like Abu Lahab did, he didn't support him early on like Abu Talib did, he was deciding and then later on he joins. We'll examine when Hamza will join the message of the Prophet. So it seems that he was there at the gathering, yes. We don't have evidence to say that he was not there at the gathering. But I have heard that Hamza was always there to protect he would, he would protect the Holy Prophet but it seems in those very early periods it was more based uh, on family ties. You know, because he was close in age to the Prophet and he grew up with the Prophet, so obviously he does not want people to harm the Prophet and he knew the Prophet was a good man. But did he believe in him early on? It's not that clear. He was close to the Prophet, so yes, definitely. He, he maybe at that point he was not ready for such a commitment yet. Okay. Imam Ali was the only one who was ready for, for such a commitment. Yes. You're submitting to somebody that you'll obey their orders and you're taking them as your master. So this is a lifetime commitment and couldn't like some people may argue that Ali wasn't rational at that time. Or well the fact that the Prophet accepted his commitment shows that the Prophet saw this commitment as a worthy commitment. Otherwise the Prophet would have dismissed him. And he told him, look you're young, that's not the commitment I'm looking for. When he held him by his neck and he announced him as the Khalifa and my brother and my supporter and my Khalifa amongst you, it means the Prophet found his commitment worthy. So that argument would not stand. Now the Prophet knew from the beginning that Imam Ali would be his successor, 
but he did not want to give anyone room to say, oh, you never gave us that opportunity. Why is Ali having all the virtues? We would have supported you too. No one could say that because the Prophet gave them that opportunity and none of them came forward. So it was actually to show that Imam Ali was the only qualified one. Even though the Prophet before this event, he knew that you know, they're not going to become his Khalifa. He knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him that knowledge. And in fact, in the speech, he does hint that. He says, Allah has already told me who my Khalifa is. However, Allah has asked me to present this to you to see how you would react to this. So this is known as Hadith al-Dar. It's a very important Hadith which establishes the Khilafa of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib salam. This happened around three years after the Ba'tha when the Prophet started receiving revelation about three years before he went public with his mission in the third stage of his mission he invited his family and he offered that to them but of course you know um, many of them did not believe in him and they did not accept to be his supporter and Khalifa. Then the third stage starts in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet to go public with this. Now after this let's discuss a very important event that happened in the Prophet's life in Mecca. It's something that has so many details, so many hadiths, verses in the Quran speak about this and it was truly a turning point in the Prophet's life and that is Al-Isra Wal-Ma'raj. The ascension of the Prophet to the heavens, you know his journey from Mecca to Jerusalem. First of all, when did this happen? The Mi'raj, what was the date of it? How many years after the Prophet received revelation did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take him on that journey? We have so many views here, so many conflicting reports. Some scholars believe it was about three to five years after Ba'tha, after he started receiving revelation. Some say seven years, many say ten years, some say 12-13 years, so just months before he migrated to the city of Medina, that's when the Mi'raj happened. So we've got a lot of conflicting reports as to when that happened. Now some of our scholars have done you know, their historical analysis of this event and they say that we feel confident it actually, that it actually happened early on. So probably somewhere between three to five years, most likely four to five years after the Ba'tha, after receiving revelation is when this event happened. Now why do they say that? What, it, what are some clues that we can cite to establish that it happened early on, not later in the Prophet's you know, stay in Mecca? First proof, Ibn Abbas, who was the cousin of the Prophet, he was very close to the Prophet. In his hadith, he says this happened two years after the Ba'tha. So we tend to trust Ibn Abbas more than some of these historians who came later, right? Like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, Tabari and these others who came later. They're saying for example year 10, year 12, year 13, well Ibn Abbas says two years. And by the way, it's very possible that Ibn Abbas, when he says two years, he means five years. Why? Remember those first three years, they were private, right? So a lot of the times when some of these companions 
would give us a date about the Prophet's mission of spreading Islam, they would actually uh, consider the starting point when the Prophet went public with it. So oftentimes they would not count those three years. So when Ibn Abbas says two years after the Ba'tha or after he started preaching Islam, it's very likely that he means four or five years. So that's one argument that we have, a hadith from Ibn Abbas in which he says two years. So it was early on. The point we're trying to establish is that this happened early on in his mission, not later in Mecca. Yes. Um, so if Da'wad al-Ashira happened in about three um, after the, uh, year three, um, how long after that was the public the days after that, days after. yes, after the Prophet invited his family, they took a stance like Abu Lahab, then Allah reveals the verse which says, فَاصْدَعْ بِمَا تُؤْمَرْ Now go public with it. So it came very shortly after that. So that was the incident where the Prophet talks to the people of Quraysh, if I tell you that there is an army behind this mountain. Exactly, exactly. That's when he went public, not the first day when he received revelation, he did not say that. Three years later, the incident happened where he gathered them and he told them, if I were to tell you there's a caravan behind the mountain, would you believe me? When they said yes, then he went public with it and he invited them to the religion of Islam. Yes. Um, so, I think Salman came, in, uh, came around in Medina, but companions like Abu Dhar and... and yes, we examined that previously. Sure. Abu Dhar was the fourth or fifth companion to join. Was that so at this time, Abu Dhar had joined the Prophet. Was that in the first three years? Right? In the first three years, yes. In the first three years, we had about 40 people who had joined the religion of Islam in those three, uh, 40 years. So let's not call it like a secret movement. It was low profile. So some of the companions would hear about the Prophet. Remember, we discussed how Imam Ali privately took Abu Dhar to the Prophet. And he heard the message of Islam and he became Muslim. So yes, Abu Dhar became Muslim in those three years. Yes. So that's the first argument that we have that Ibn Abbas, he says it was two years after. Number two, we have hadiths from Imam Ali that say it was three years after the Ba'tha of the Prophet, which is also an indication that it happened early on. Number three, and this one's very important, we have hadiths from not just Shia sources, from Sunni sources, for example Al-Tabarani in his book, he mentions this hadith in his Al-Mu'jam Al-Kabir, Haythami, a Sunni scholar in the book Majma' Al-Zawa'id, he mentions this and a number of other sources. We also have Shia sources that mention this. And the hadith has many many sources, you know, Ibn Abbas, Sa'd ibn Malik, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, Imam al-Sadiq, Aisha herself narrates this hadith. So we have a number of sources for this hadith. What's Aisha's version of the hadith? According to these hadiths, Aisha would see the Prophet embracing Fatima and kissing her frequently. Apparently that disturbed her. So once she objected to the Prophet, she told him, O Messenger of God, you know, what's the matter here? You keep uh, embracing her, smelling her neck, kissing her, why do you do that? What did he respond? The Prophet tells Aisha, according to the Sunni sources, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took me to the journey of the Mi'raj, 
Jibra'il, he gives the details of how Jibra'il would take him to one heaven after the other until he reaches the seventh heaven, the highest heaven. Now one version says the Prophet took, he sees a tree, he sees a tree in paradise, a very blessed tree, the Prophet describes how beautiful it is, how fragrant it was and you know he asked Jibra'il what is this tree, Jibra'il tells him the specifics and the characteristics of this tree, then Jibra'il tells him, O Prophet, Allah wants you to eat from this tree. So one hadith that the Sunnis have narrated, it says it was dates. One hadith that we have said it was an apple, in any case it was some sort of fruit, heavenly fruit. He tells him, Allah wants you to eat from this fruit. The Prophet says, I ate from that heavenly fruit, then when I came down to earth, after this journey, my wife Khadija became pregnant with Fatima. So the origin of my daughter Fatima is from paradise because when I ate from that tree, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed Fatima in, in, my, in me. And then when I went down to earth, Fatima was conceived. So her origin is heavenly, then the Prophet tells Aisha, so whenever I miss smelling paradise, I smell my daughter Fatima, she reminds me of the smell of paradise because she is Hawra in Siya. Hawra is a heavenly creature and that's why we say Hur al-Ain. Hur al-Ain is the plural of Hawra. Hawra is singular for one person. So Hawra means heavenly or ha having heavenly origins but she is a human with heavenly origins. That's why we say Hawra' Insiyah. Insiyah means human, Hawra' means heavenly. So we have this hadith that actually tells us Fatima was born after the ascension to the Mi'raj. When was Fatima born? In the fifth year after the Ba'tha. So the Mi'raj must have happened before the fifth year. Otherwise if you say the Mi'raj happened year 12, 13, Fatima was born at that time, she was 7-8 years old. And we have authentic hadiths that tell us Fatima was born after the incident of Mi'raj. So this is one argument that scholars have used you know, to say that the Mi'raj actually happened early on. By the way this hadith also proves what? That Lady Fatima when she was martyred, how old was she? 18 or 28? The popular Shia opinion says what? 18. The Sunnis say what? 28. Well, if she was born after Mi'raj, she must be what at that time? She must have been 18. Because they claim she was born before Ba'tha, before the Prophet received revelation, five years before that when the Prophet was 35 years old, Fatima was born. We say she was born when he was 45 years old, five years after Ba'tha and one proof is the hadith of Mi'raj, that she was born after the incident of Mi'raj. The incident of Mi'raj came after the Prophet's prophethood, not before. Now some scholars have said there was a political motive to make Fatima al-Zahra 10 years older, why? Because when you say she was born before the Ba'tha, then you, de you deny her heavenly origin then the hadith of Mi'raj would not be applicable to her, right? 
you could say, ah, this is all false because she was born before Ba'tha, so even if we have a good chain, solid chain, just disregard all those hadiths. So some of our scholars, upon their analysis and examination, they've observed that some other schools of thought, they deliberately insisted on Fatima being 10 years older to deny her this virtue, that her origin is heavenly. Yes, and that's exactly what they did. They made Fatima to Zahra السلام, older and Aisha many, many years younger. Yes, brother. So, Sayyid, when the Prophet goes to the heaven, does this mean that he also sees the people that are there in heaven, or is it just certain things we're allowed to see, or is it like everything he saw? So, we'll examine that when we look at the details of exactly what happened. Um, the correct opinion is that heaven and hell have been created. Some, some other schools of thought, they believe in the future God will create them, but we have evidence that says they have been created. The Prophet did see heaven in its original form. He saw hell in its original form. He saw people in paradise, he saw people in punished in hell, yes. So we do have those details. So what are some other quick proofs that we can cite? Surah Al-Isra, talks about this journey from you know, Masjid al-Haram to Jerusalem and then Surah al-Najm also talks about the ascension. Surah al-Isra which talks about this, when was it revealed? It was revealed early after the Ba'tha, not 12 to 13 years later. So we can say that when Allah mentions this journey in Surah al-Isra and Surah al-Isra was revealed early on, that means when did the journey happen? Early on, right? That's one proof. Number two, Surah Al-Najm. Surah Al-Najm was also one of those surahs which talks about the Mi'raj and it was revealed early on. You had, probably it was the 23rd or 22nd surah that was revealed in Mecca. Some 60 chapters were revealed after Surah Al-Najm in Mecca. So this tells us that Surah Al-Najm was actually revealed early on, not towards the end of the Prophet's stay in Mecca. So these are just some clues you know that indicate that. Another indication is that in Hadith al-Mi'raj, one Hadith says when the Prophet came back to earth, Jibra'il told him, Ya Rasulallah, give my salam and the salam of Allah to your wife Khadija. But if you say that this happened the year 1213, Khadija had passed away during the year 1213 because she passed away in the ninth or 10th year after the Ba'tha. So this tells us that she was still alive. So this happened probably a little bit early on. We also have hadiths Abu Talib, when he realized the Prophet was missing that night, he was not to be found because he was in the heavens, he got worried, he dispatched his family members, let's search for him, which tells us Abu Talib was also alive. Now Abu Talib during the 12th or 13th year, 13th year of the Ba'tha, he, he had passed away. So these are all indications that this probably, we don't know the exact date, but it probably happened early on. Now some scholars have given the possibility that the ascension to the heavens happened a number of times. Some of it early on, some of it later on. It's a possibility, we don't have solid proof that proves that. It's just a possibility, but we can't really verify it happened a few times. We definitely know it happened once, but we're not sure if it happened more than that. So what exactly happened that night? Let's see the journey of the Prophet It was at night, 
in a dark night, people are resting, people are about to sleep, when Jibra'il comes to the Prophet. Ya Rasulullah, this night is a special night. God has chosen you for a journey no other Prophet before you has fully completed. And this is an honor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, has given you. So he tells him that we will have you travel to numerous parts of the earth, then you will travel to the heavens. The Prophet asks, what is the transportation that will take me? So he shows him the Burak. Now there's a lot of discussion on what the Burak is. Uh, you know, some imagine it as a unicorn, you know, a flying unicorn. We do have descriptions how beautiful it was. It was, you know, whiter than snow. Um, it was luminous. It was a beautiful creation of God. Uh, we even have references to its size and how it would travel. We have a lot of details about that. So Jibra'il tells the Prophet, mount on the Burak. By the way, the word Burak, some scholars have said, comes from the Arabic word Barq. What does Barq mean? Thunder. Not thunder, lightning. lightning. So it comes from the word light, which means it travels as fast as light or you know, probably it even travels faster than that. So it's a very high speed vehicle which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to his messenger to travel. So the Prophet mounts on the Burak and Jibra'il and Mikail, two of God's greatest angels, they were guiding that vehicle of the Prophet So where do they go? Well first of all, where does the journey start from? Allah says in Surah Al-Asra, Subhanallahi Asra bi'abdihi be glory to God, the one who had his messenger, his, uh, his slave, travel at night from Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa. Yes, sister. So the verse came down after he made his ascension. Yes. Then Allah spoke about it. Yes. So he had the journey and then immediately after the journey, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals those verses. Yes. So these verses were revealed early on in the Prophet's mission, which tells us that this journey probably happened early on, not towards the last days of his days in Mecca. So from Masjid al-Haram, now some hadith say specifically from the house of Umhani. Who's Umhani? Sister of Imam Ali It's right by Masjid al-Haram in that sacred area. So that's where their journey started. The Prophet was in Masjid al-Haram, he came to the house of Umhani, then she saw him missing. And the Prophet started his journey. Where did he go? He started going north. From Mecca, he started traveling north. The first stop, according to some hadiths, was Medina. At the time, it was called what? Yathrib. So Jibra'il had that Burak stop in Medina. The Prophet came down from the Burak. He prayed two rak'ahs in Medina. Then he mounted on the Burak. Where was his next stop? In Egypt, Tur Sayna. Tur Sayna, Jibra'il tells the Prophet, O Messenger of God, this is where Musa السلام, would speak to Allah. This is where he would receive the tablets. So he stops there, he does two rak'ah there, and he prays in Tur Sayna. Third stop, he, got, he now goes towards Palestine. Hadiths indicate that this third stop was Beit Laham. In English, what do we call it? Bethlehem. 
So we have a number of narrations as to where Prophet Isa السلام, is born. A number of narrations say he was born in Beit Laham. So Jibra'il tells him, stop here, pray here. This is the place that was blessed by Isa Then he mounts on the Burak. Where was his final stop on earth? Beit Al-Maqdis. Beit Al-Maqdis is where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is called Beit al-Maqdis in Arabic, you know the, the house of purity in Arabic. So he stops there and Jibra'il tells him come down, he takes him to the second mosque in Islam, it's one of the holy mosques in Islam, Masjid al-Aqsa, Dome of the Rock or Masjid al-Sakhra, it's also called that. So he comes down, he prays in there, and he tells him, Jibra'il tells him that here you have many, many prophets who prayed here. Here you have the graves of many prophets who are buried here. This is a holy land, this is a holy place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has declared holy. So the Prophet prays there. Some hadiths indicate the souls of the prophets gathered there and they all prayed behind the holy prophet Yes. We have a number of hadith from Sunnis and Shias which say that they prayed behind him. Now remember it's highly mustahab to pray in this mosque. A hadith from Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib says the one who prays in it, his salah will be multiplied by 1,000 times. One hadith says 50,000 times. So two rak'ahs you pray there, Allah gives you the reward of 50,000 prayers. And remember the first qibla of Muslims was where? Before the Kaaba became the Qibla in Medina, where was the Qibla? Masjid al-Aqsa, it was in Jerusalem. Yes, brother. So only the souls of prophets that were deceased prayed behind him, like Prophet Isa he's not technically dead, so he's not part of this, like prophets who are not dead, only he has to be dead to have prayed behind him like that? Okay, so what about those prophets who were living, like Prophet Isa salam, Prophet Idris for example, did they pray behind him or no? According to our hadiths, yes they did. Which brings us to this discussion, uh, bear with me with this discussion because there are many misunderstandings, especially you'll find other schools of thought mocking you know, the hadiths of, of, of the Shia when it comes to what Masjid Al-Aqsa is. So we do have a holy mosque in Jerusalem, no doubt about that. Many, many Shia hadiths that if you pray in that mosque, it's highly recommended, 1,000 times, 50,000 times. From Imam Ali we have a number of hadiths. So we do have a holy mosque. But the Masjid Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa in Arabic means what? Ab'ad, the farthest mosque, the far mosque. Where exactly is that far mosque? By the way, in Jerusalem there are a number of mosques. You have that mosque which has become the symbol of Palestine, it's a golden dome. By the way, that's not the one the Prophet prayed in. No, it's the other one, which I think has a green dome. Yes, it's an old, old structure. It's, it's, it's in the same area, by the way, just the other side of the courtyard. The Dome of the Rock, Masjid al-Sakhra. That is commonly known as Masjid al-Aqsa. That other mosque was established later. Now at the time of the Prophet there was a mosque, but then during the time of the second Khalifa, Umar ibn al-Khattab, he went there, he visited Jerusalem, and then the Umayyads actually expanded the mosque and they built the mosque, uh, the one that we see in Jerusalem. 
Now there's a discussion as to where exactly is the Aqsa Mosque that the Quran mentions. There are hadiths mentioned in Shia sources from Imam al-Sadiq One companion comes to Imam al-Sadiq, he tells him Allah mentions the Aqsa Mosque in Surah Al-Isra, where is it? The Imam tells him what do the people say, meaning other schools of thought, what do they say? He says that mosque in Palestine. The Imam says no, Masjid Al-Aqsa is actually a mosque in the fourth heaven, which is linked to the Kaaba, Bayt Al-Ma'mur. In the fourth heaven, that's the sacred mosque that the Prophet actually went to after visiting Jerusalem. After visiting that mosque in Jerusalem, the Prophet then took a vertical journey into the heavens. In the fourth heaven, he met the prophets, including Isa and the hadith says they were all standing in one line. They wanted to pray. The Prophet is humble. You know, he doesn't want to quickly go forward and pray. So Jibra'il holds his hand and he pushes him. He tells him, Ya Rasulullah, you have to lead the prophets. So according to these hadiths, Prophet Isa السلام, prayed behind the Prophet there in the fourth heaven. Now not all scholars accept this, some scholars find these hadiths unusual, what do you mean Aqsa is in the fourth heaven, we know that Aqsa is in Jerusalem. So we do have these hadiths, in any case if we accept these hadiths, there is no doubt that there is a holy mosque in Jerusalem, you know that Dome of the Rock mosque, if you pray in it, thousand or fifty thousand times, it's a very holy mosque, it was the Qibla of the Muslims before Mecca and the Kaaba became the Qibla of the Muslims, but technically where exactly is the Aqsa Mosque that the Quran mentions? Most scholars like I've said, especially the Sunni scholars, they do accept that it's in Jerusalem. There are some hadiths that we have in Shia sources which tell us that the Aqsa Mosque is actually in the heavens. It's a barakna hawla. Allah says we've blessed the surroundings of that mosque. So that area of Bayt al-Ma'mur in the seventh, in the fourth heaven has been blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we do have such narrations. Now some scholars accept that, some don't. That's up to you know um, your own research and your own acceptance of these hadiths. Uh, some of them are solid hadiths, but some scholars find it unusual, you know, that the Aqsa Mosque will be there but we do have those hadiths. In any case, the Prophet goes to Jerusalem, he prays there, we call this journey from Mecca to Jerusalem Isra, which means to travel on earth by night. The next stage is the more important stage. After praying in Jerusalem, Jibra'il tells the Prophet, okay now the second part of the journey starts. This was a horizontal journey, now let's go vertical. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, wants to show you His kingdom and the heavens. So He mounts on the Burak and the Burak ascends into the heavens and that's what we call the Mi'raj, the ascension. So the Isra usually refers to the journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, and then the journey from Jerusalem into the heavens is called the Mi'raj, which is the ascension. Now there's a lot of discussion on the Mi'raj, exactly what the Mi'raj is, 
what happened in the Mi'raj, we'll examine the details later because there's a lot to discuss about Hadith al-Mi'raj, many many important things happened, many many important discussions. Yes brother. Some school of thought they say that all this happened in a fraction of earthly time. Yes, this all happened in one night. After sunset, before sunrise, before Fajr, the Prophet was back. So this all happened in that one night. Not the night, they said the fraction of seconds. No, no, it took a while. It took a while. You know, the Prophet, early at night, uh, he, he was seen missing from Mecca, from the house of Umhani. And then before Fajr, he came back. So it appears that it, do, it took some time. Okay. Remember, the Prophet, he would stop in these places, right? He would stop. Uh, he would pray two rak'ahs, so the earthly journey definitely took more than a few seconds because he would stop in Medina, he would do salah, he would show him around in Tur in Sayna. Now the Mi'raj itself, we don't exactly know how long it took, the vertical ascension, but it was a pretty fast one. Okay, so they say that uh, even he felt the warmth, warmth of his back yeah, when he came and, back. And the latch on the door was totally We'll examine, we'll examine this hadith, whether that's authentic or not. We'll examine that when we see how the Prophet came back. Now there's a discussion, some, some have said, by the way no Shia scholar accepts this, most Sunnis also don't accept this, but some have said that the Mi'raj was a dream. It was a dream that the Prophet had, it was not physically going into Mi'raj, uh, that's not the case. What appears from the Quran and the hadiths, and nearly the consensus of Muslims is that, is that it was a physical ascension into the heavens, not that the Prophet had a vision or a dream. So it did happen, we'll examine whether it happened so fast that the warmth you know, of the bed was still preserved. So there are many many details that we'll discuss about the Mi'raj, many things happened in Mi'raj, a lot of events that the Prophet saw, he met many Prophets, Salah before that was not wajib, mandatory, after Mi'raj Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet that now you have to make Salah wajib for Muslims, we'll examine how that happened and Musa has a role to play in that, initially the Salah was supposed to be 50 rak'ahs, then it was reduced to 5, we'll examine, are these hadiths authentic, what do we understand from them, and then we'll examine how the Prophet came back to earth and when he told the Quraysh of this incident, you know they attacked him of, they accused him of lying, of making this stuff up, then he gave them a powerful sign that happened, in which he saw a caravan on the way back, he spilled the water. We'll examine all of that, inshallah, next after the break.